Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> hey, guys. Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. This is the opening act. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, remotely, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. <laughs> TJ, I'm. I think we need to kind of address the uh, muffled elephant in the room. We're having to record this separately because of social distancing and uh, safer at home. Because we're being responsible humans yes. and not trying to infect each other. Yes, please, guys. If you're within distance of listening to our voices, wash your hands and stay inside. <laughs> yes. You can stay inside and listen to all, what, 58 episodes of our podcast. That'll yeah. take some time. Yeah. So, uh, have That'll you- last you probably at least a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, have you been binging anything since you started, or have you found something new to watch, or anything? I think it's hilarious. You think I still have time to watch TV. Yeah. Um, it's really not affecting my free time that much at all, except for the weekends, because I still, I'm one of those- fortunate people that still gets to work from home um and it's been particularly trying because we are in current productions and current airing schedules with some of the shows like idol and uh so those are changing constantly right now and so i really don't have that much more free time than i normally would uh other than the weekend so and then i'm trying to use that in positive ways and uh, use it to tackle some of the big projects at home that I usually am like, I don't have time for that. Or I don't feel like that. I work too hard this week. <laughs> or screw this. Let's go to the bar at two o'clock in the afternoon. See, I, I lost both my jobs. <laughs> like my business had to be shuttered because it's a wedding videography business. And so no one can get married right now because you know, that they're saying like more than Gathering. two people. And- yeah, you can't have more than two people in your gathering. Travel, et cetera. Yeah, and then the other one was, you know, I, I'm a casting producer. And so there are no shows right now. So <laughs> not I, active, no. I have a lot of free time. Yeah, it's not really active right now, no. No, so we, we watched, so we made it through all eight of the Harry Potter movies. And then I started watching this TV show called Love is Blind. And it is terrible. <laughs> And I'm on episode six. Yeah. Yeah. So on top of the crazy, the crazy audio, you may also hear my dogs at some point. I have animals and they are home with me as well. It's also our opening act. So it's like less edited, you know, it's more fun for us to do. So, yep. This is us real and raw, baby. Yep. So today's opening act is going to be talking about the grunge era, the, 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 the subculture of grunge and its kind of effects on society and the community and things like that. So 
the reason why we're talking about grunge today is because in just a couple days will be the anniversary of one of you know, grunge's biggest icons is the anniversary of his death and so our next episode will actually be about Kurt Cobain. And so to give you kind of an idea of who Kurt Cobain was, I wanted to talk about the genre in which he kind of dominated in. And so that's why we're gonna be talking about grunge today. Also, I, I have mixed feelings about grunge. <laughs> I love it. I loved all the music, but it did kind of make me, it made me angsty. I don't think I was angsty before grunge and then grunge like brought out the angst in me. So if you didn't have angst, they couldn't have brought it out. So grunge is a musical genre, which actually reached its peak of development around 1992. And at that point I was 12. So I don't even know if I know what angst was at 12. That's right when your angst is growing, dude. So it's, uh, it's evolution actually started in Seattle, obviously, uh, which is the capital of the state of Washington in the American Northwest. The term grunge was actually first used in a completely different sense from what it would actually later represent. It was mentioned in 1981, like all the way back in 1981 by Mark Arm, who was the front man of the Seattle band Mud Honey and Green River. And he used it inadvertently to describe the music of his first band, Mr. Epps and the Calculations. The word grunge is an American slang for someone or something that is repugnant. And it also means- It's dirty. It's dirty. Yep. It's dirty. I love it. Oh my God. I love grunge music so much. <laughs> then you're gonna have a good time like the next two episodes. So. Oh, I love it. I love it. The word was first recorded as being applied to Seattle musicians in July, 1987 when Bruce Pavitt described Green River's Dry as a Bone EP in a sub-pop uh, record company catalog. He was quoted as saying, gritty vocals, roaring martial amps, ultra-loose grunge that destroys the morals of a generation, which is just a great quote. Nice. And also, flannels. Don't forget the flannels. We get there. I have a whole section on fashion. Ah, come on. Don't. It's me. I had to do fashion, dude. Of course. <laughs> but the flannels, all oh, the flannels. The word grunge has been used to describe bands since the 1960s. Uh, it was the first association of grunge with the grinding, sludgy sound of Seattle. It's expensive and time-consuming to get a recording to be, like, to sound clean. And you know that. Like, it takes oh yeah a really long time to, like, clean vocals up, clean music up, cut things, like... So for those bands that were just starting out, it's actually cheaper to leave them sounding dirty and just turn up the volume. And mm -hmm. this dirty sound due to low budgets, unfamiliarity with recording, and the lack of professionalism may have actually kind of been the origin of the term grunge. So it's almost like this come from nothing, do it yourself and leave it the way it is kind of attitude that created the grunge sound. Grunge's sound partly resulted from Seattle's isolation from other music scenes because it's like Seattle. It's yeah, not it's not Nashville. It's not LA. It's not New York. It's like 14 hours away from Los Angeles. Yeah. It's I mean, if you think about it, all those places have their own kind of sound and style coming because they are remote. I mean, it just it puts Seattle on the map as a place to find music versus the other normal places that you would think of like 
Memphis and Nashville and New York and Chicago and LA and Detroit. Like it's, it puts itself on the map as well, another it, place to find good music and, a, and its own style of music, not just what everybody else is doing in other parts of the country. Well, the thing that I can say that it's like closely tied to, like when it comes to locations is think about bluegrass. That was like done in the mountains where there, there's, you know, it's close to Nashville, but it wasn't exactly the Nashville sound. Right. And they were very isolated and they created their own kind of subgenre of music. So right. I think that's kind of how Seattle was. And I'm going to keep using this phrase sub pop. And before anybody gets confused by what that actually is, sub pop was a record label. And Jonathan Homan noted that Seattle is a perfect example of a secondary city with an active music scene that was completely ignored by the American media fixated on Los Angeles and New York. Mark Arm claimed, claimed that the isolation meant this one corner of the map being really inbred and ripping off each other's ideas. Seattle was a remote city in the 1980s, and Bruce Pavitt stated that the city was very working class and a place of depravitation. And so the scene, the whole aesthetic, work clothes, thrift store, trucker hats, pawn shop guitars was just not in style because that was what they were doing in Seattle. It was very poor. Indeed, when Nevermind reached number one on the U.S. charts, Kurt Cobain was actually living in a car. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you had this, this town that, while it was big, it was pretty much isolated from any of the really big markets, and they had their own style and their own sound, and it was very, you know, blue-collar workers, and so you know, that gave it a really unique sound. Well, yeah, they had to do it all on the cheap. Yeah, and they would constantly, like, they would all kind of inbreed. And also why they all looked like they were, you know, homeless. Yeah, and the reason why I wrote an entire section on fashion was because of this, was because they, they Dolly Parton said it best, it takes a lot of money to look to this look that cheap. Yep, and uh, that became a thing. Like, looking like you were trash became a fashion statement within the grunge scene, and so that's why I wrote an entire section, but we'll get there, because uh, right now it's about the music, but we'll get to the fashion. Okay. Uh, bands began to mix metal and punk in the Seattle scene around 1984, with much of the credit for the fusion going to the U-Men, which was a band. Right. However, some critics have noted that in spite of the U-Men's canonical place in the original grunge pantheon, their sound was less indebted to heavy metal and more akin to post-punk. However, the unique idiosyncratic sort of aspects of the bands may have been a bigger inspiration more than the aesthetics themselves. And so soon Seattle had this growing and varied music scene and a diverse urban personality expressed by local post-punk garage bands. And basically, it was like, this is what grunge came from. Grunge was sort of a, a glow-up of the punk scene because it was kind of born of politics. Right. And sort of raging against the machine. I was going to say, band name, hello. Yeah. Right there in the title. Yeah. Punk was on the surface a very angry musical style that you know people use as a political statement against the man and grunge is kind of grown from that i feel like and i think maybe this is why i like grunge so much but i feel like grunge is kind of a mix 
of punk and country a little bit because it's like very blue collar nor every man but with that angsty and aggression both in sound and in lyric of punk yeah that's maybe why I love it so much and the Seattle scene sort of refers to that city's alternative music movement which is kind of you know what we know uh, we label grunge music now it's now alternative music that was actually linked to the University of Washington and Evergreen State College. Evergreen was a progressive college, which does not use a conventional grading system, and it had its own radio station, KAOS. Seattle, Seattle's remoteness from Los Angeles led to a more of a purity of its music because they were less influenced by bands that were like gigging in the Los Angeles area. Right. Uh, the music of these bands, many of which recorded in Seattle's independent record label Sub Pop, which I mentioned earlier, became labeled as grunge. Nirvana's frontman Kurt Cobain, in one of his final interviews, credited Jonathan Poman, co-founder of Sub Pop, with coining the term grunge. But of course, you know the the guy from Mud Honey, Mark Arm, is also credited. So of course, like all good art, many people are given credit for the actual term. Well, because. It was a creation and an evolution, you know? Yeah. The term Seattle Sound was actually a marketing ploy for the music industry. So they kind of took it and sort of twisted it and said, oh, it's something new. Look what we have. This is something new and different. You've never heard this. It's not anything that you've ever been exposed to before. And in September of 1991, uh, the Nirvana album Nevermind was released, bringing mainstream attention to the music of Seattle. Kurt loathed the word grunge, and despite the new scene that was developing, he felt like the record companies were signing old cock rock bands who were pretending to be grunge and claiming to be from Seattle. So basically, he was like calling out the posers. Well, yeah. Yeah. Some bands that are associated with the genre are Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Allison Chains. Bush. We're getting there. Preferred to be referred to as rock and roll bands instead of like grunge. Ben Shepard from Soundgarden stated that he hates the word grunge and hates being associated with it. Seattle means, yeah, (laughs) which is, I feel like Soundgarden also, Nirvana didn't get the opportunity to grow out of that sound. Right. Because Kurt's death, but Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Bush, all those guys got an opportunity to kind of grow at the time. So they, I, I can understand like, how they would want to distance themselves from it. Well, no, they're, again, though, like, they they saw evolution in their music, too. So maybe once they started in that genre, it has grown from there. Yeah. Another big thing that plays an important role in the expansion of grunge was the environment. As Jack Indino, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, a local record producer put it, when the weather is crappy, you don't feel like going outside. You go into the basement, you make a lot of noise, and you take out your frustration. Yep. Yeah. Another key figure in the early grunge scene was Art Chantry, a graphic designer, pointed out the Northwest is weird. It's the flying saucer capital of the USA, serial killer capital of the USA, and the Manson family used to vacation here. Hey, seasonal affective disorder is no joke. No kidding. (laughs) Nonetheless, the state of Washington- Especially when it never ends. Also, stay inside. (laughs) I don't know. Right now, you gotta stay inside. I don't care how good the weather is. Stay oh, inside. yeah, right now, yeah. Right now, stay inside. I know, if my Wi-Fi reached, I'd be sitting and doing this from my fire pit out back. <laughs> yeah, but then we get birds. So? <laughs> and a fountain. Oh, no. It would be really relaxing for our listeners. Or make them have to go to the bathroom. That, too. <laughs> <laughs> my virtual happy hour the other night, I was 
sitting there and I could hear the fountain trickling behind me. I'm like, oh, I have to pee. Ah. Because of all this like kind of craziness, like the flying saucer capital, serial killer capital, and a apparently a vacation spot for the Manson family. Jesus. Um, it's actually synonymous for a new mass revolt against the traditional values in popular culture. And that was the thing, like the Seattle sound is, you know, you talk about the Nashville sound, you talk about the Motown sound, like those are all tied to a place. Like they yeah. have a solid, like you can point to that city and go, that's where the sound came from. Yeah. Yeah. So lyrically, it's like dark, nihilistic, wretched, angst-filled, often addressing themes as social alienation, self-doubt, abuse, neglect, betrayal, social isolation, emotional isolation, psychological trauma, and desire for freedom. An article by MIT states that grunge lyrics were obsessed with disenfranchisement, and I completely agree. Yeah. Um, they described a mood of resigned despair. Catherine Strong states that grunge songs were usually about negative experiences or feelings, with the main things being alienation and depression, but with an ironic sneer. Grunge artists express strong feelings in their lyrics about social ills, including desires to crucify the insincere, and an approach which fans appreciated for its authenticity. Grunge lyrics have been categorized as violent, often obscene. In 1996, conservative columnist Rich Low Lowry wrote an essay criticizing grunge entitled Heroin Our Hero, and he called it a, a music that is mostly shorn of ideas and impulses for political action. Biting! Wow. I mean, um, how do you really feel, dude? Yeah. So and I I do agree with that. It was in every generation you have a musical movement that steers away from the pop mainstream kind of thing and it focuses on reality. What are people feeling? What are people thinking? Like there was a distance in the 90s. We were coming out of the 80s and one of the biggest events that had just happened was the the falling of the berlin wall which you saw people coming together after you know decades of being apart and you saw them making connections and it didn't matter if they were family or strangers like you saw people having this general this genuine connection and we don't have that even now right we have an absolute social disconnection and i think well, particularly now yeah i mean I feel like though people now are actually reaching out and and that's true. I've I've been more in touch with everybody now than I have been. Oh yeah, I Facetimed my friends in Arizona and had like a two-hour Facetime conversation with them. Oh yeah, it's just crazy. So you know that like throughout the years we're separated by our generations. So you have like the Boomer generation, the Silent generation, Gen X, Millennials. You, know, you have all that. And silent I, generation? I've never heard of that. The silent generation was uh, 1925 to 1939. So those were, that was the, that was the silent generation. Um, it They preceded like the baby boomers. Why'd they call them that though? That's crazy. Let's educate ourselves. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wait, what? I have never heard of this. Why do they call themselves the silent generation? And Time Magazine first used the term silent generation in a November 5th, 1950 article titled The Younger Generation. And although the term appears to precede that publication, a reason later 
proposed for this perceived silence is as young adults during the McCarthy era, many of the members of the generation felt like it was unwise to speak out. Ah. So that that's their generation. Okay. So grunge lyrics developed as part of the Gen X malaise, which reflecting the demographic feelings of disillusionment and uselessness. Uh, grunge songs about love were usually about failed, boring, doomed, or destructive relationships, which is like, you know, Pearl Jam's Black, um, the Alice in Chains song Dirt and Hate to Feel all have references to heroin in them. Mm -hmm. And grunge lyrics tend to be more introspective and aim to enable the listener to see like hidden personal issues and examine the depravity of the world. And that approach can be seen in like the Mud Honey song, uh, Touch Me, I'm Sick, whose lyrics include the deranged imagery, which depicts a broken world and fragmented self-image. The song includes the lines, I feel bad and I felt worse and I won't live long. I'm full of rot. And the Nirvana song, Lithium, from one of the greatest albums ever, Nevermind, mm -hmm. is a man who finds faith after his girlfriend's suicide. It depicts irony and ugliness as a way of dealing with these dark issues. So I think grunge music was more introspective and less vapid than the music of the 80s. And I'm not saying like the 80s didn't have deep introspective songs to it, but on the surface, it was more of a, a lighter tone in music. It was more, hey, let's party. Yeah, and I'm not saying there weren't songs like Luca, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, you know the song my name is luca i live on the second floor no i don't that's, know a, song, but. that's that's about abuse and so there were songs that were but as a whole the genre like the encapsulation of the 1980s music was more vapid and more consumerist now the punk movement was still going on but it wasn't as mainstream as grunge was going to be right it was still more accessible to like subgenres and subcultures than it was the mainstream. Okay. And we're going to talk about punk right now. Grunge is actually a fusion of many different styles. And one of the styles is punk. In the early 1980s, punk music was considered controversial and it wasn't easy for young people, especially in America and certainly not in the American Northwest due to its geographical isolation. But its grounds were established thanks to a few truly independent young minds that not only loved music, but had the insight in the ethics of the punk subculture, which promoted self-production, independence, and an open opposition to any corporate powers. So like basically anti-establishment, which is really what hit people for punk. They had significant amount of politics, mostly left-wing in them, and specifically... Fancy's promoted an anti-establishment, anti-corporation, and vegetarianism. So, like, seriously. Yeah. They were on the edge, man. <laughs> Plant power, baby. <laughs> uh, so, a punk soul culture lived in a certain ideology, which, like, rejected old traditions. And, it, you know, they, they weren't against the working man. They were against the corporation's that used the working man to get ahead. Mm -hmm. Seattle bands that were punk rock in the beginning, like the U-Men, 10-Minute Warning, the Flashbacks, the Melvins, started making slower and heavier riffs in contrast to the lightning speed of punk. Which, yeah, like, punk goes at the speed of light. Like, it is, like, raging guitars, slamming drums. Like, it, it's a speed music. 
and take that in contrast with say something like lithium or rate me from nirvana and you see like the difference in not just like speed and tone but in message see this is where we should have some examples queued up and we don't because we're working remotely and we didn't think about it yeah sorry guys there won't be any music in this episode punk was made to giving the new generation a hope of changing the status quo through lyrics Lyrics and grunge are similar to those in punk in that they're like angstfield, comprising of themes of alienation, apathy, and a desire for freedom from the established norms. Nonetheless, there are certain differences. Unlike punk, grunge lyrics do not contain explicit political content, which is really what punk was about. It was like going against that, those, those things like corporations and political stances. Social concerns were actually what grunge focused on like Pearl Jam song Jeremy which oh, so good and not only that but the music video for that was was just haunting oh yeah and they actually cut it out and I know that you uh don't know about the last episode but we actually added something to the possibilities of opening acts which is that we got the great idea that we should talk about censorship in music and music videos yep well because for like I know at least near us and in most places Pearl Jam wasn't even allowed on the radio in most places. See we were allowed to have it but MTV would took out a full section of the music video because if you watch the music video now it looks like Jeremy actually killed his classmates. Right instead of himself. Instead of himself. So the message is muddled because of their censorship. And becomes even more disturbing in the face of a lot of school shootings and things like that, where it was the other way around, where they did take out their classmates instead of themselves. Yeah. Uh, Nirvana's Polly actually talks about rape, although first hearing it, it might just sound like like a nice ballad about a bird, but <laughs> it's like... You know, because, you know, Polly want a cracker. Uh, Another important thing expressed in lyrics is the ideology that opposes the mainstream, which is really interesting because opposing the, by opposing the mainstream, they actually became mainstream. Right. So Soundgarden's guitarist, Kim Thales, punk attitudes encouraged him to downplay soloing in the 1980s. And so this is now we're getting into like actual, like the actual creation of the music and how it had started to change uh so he was downplaying solos in the 1980s however when other leading grunge bands started to de-emphasize the role of guitar solos in the early 90s he actually began to do solos again because he was like dang it stop it well he wanted to stand out yeah grunge guitarists flatly rejected the virtuoso shredding guitar solos that had become the centerpiece of heavy metal songs instead of instead opting for melodic blues inspired solos focusing on the song not the actual guitar solo. Right. Jerry, Jerry Cantrell of Allison Chain stated that solos should be there to serve the song rather than to show off the guitarist's technical skills. In place of the stirring guitar heroes of metal, Grunge had the guitar anti-heroes like Cobain who showed little interest in mastering the instrument. Mm-hmm. And the 80s were really interesting. And we've just come out of the 80s. And we had that vapid pop that we were just talking about. But then you also had glam metal and hair bands. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, <laughs> you had Van Halen, you had Poison, you I, like all these bands that would like shred, like look at November Rain from Guns N' Roses. Oh my God. But that wasn't 80s though. That was, that was the 90s, 90s. But, but it was still like, 
there's an entire section of that song that is just slash tearing into his guitar. But I also felt like it made sense in like, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just because I'm so used to it now that it seems like it. So in Will Byers' article, Grunge Committed a Crime Against Music, it killed the guitar solo. <laughs> From The Guardian, he states that while the guitar solo managed to survive through the punk rock era, it was weakened by grunge. He says that when Kurt Cobain played guitar solos, they were a reservement mainly of the vocal melody. Fans realized that they did not need him to be Jimi Hendrix to play an instrument. Uh, He said that his approach helped him make it feel like it was accessible to fans that had not been seen since the 1960 folk movement. So basically like, you don't need to be a virtuoso to be able to pick up this guitar. Anybody can do it. Right. Look how easy it is for me. Where people like, you know, Slash, Jimi Hendrix, Mark Knopfler, like those guys pick it up and they do things that you have never seen anyone do with a guitar. Runge wasn't like that. It was like, look, you can do this. This is four chords. You just pick it out. Right. And then the 60s was kind of the same thing. Like Peter Palmieri is very simple chord progression and it was more accessible well, like in country, there's the famous saying, all you need is three chords and the truth. I've never heard that, but I love it. That's a huge thing in country music. All you need is three chords and the truth. Huh. The producer of Nirvana's Nevermind, Butch Vig, stated that this album and Nirvana killed the guitar solo. Soundgarden's Kim Thale states that he feels partly responsible for the death of the guitar solo. He said that punk rock aspects made him feel like he didn't want to do solos. So in the 80s, he preferred to make noise and do feedback during guitar <laughs> solos. Babel Music called grunge guitar solos, and that's, you know, in quotation marks, of the 1990s, raw, sloppy, and basic. <laughs> <laughs> and dang, dude. So the grunge movement was also a reaction to glam metal, which is what I was talking about before. Another genre popular at the time in glam, they used too many costumes and theatrics while grunge musicians tried to keep a low profile in order to prove their credibility. Uh, Grunge bands did not write lyrics about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, nor about the devils, demons, and the apocalypse like metal bands. They wrote about the negative feelings in general, like failure, boredom, and loneliness. And you can really see how those two differ. Like, just look at the, the era of Van Halen, which had Diamond Dave, or like any other glam metal band or hair metal band. They had like the leopard pants with the pink shirts and like thousands oh, yeah. of bottles of Aquanet and pyrotechnics and the Whoa! kind of sound that people would make. And loud guitars and raging you know drums and and then put that next to a grunge song and you're gonna see that they're absolutely the antithesis of each other oh yeah maryland sports fans there's only one sports book in the great state of maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers bet fred sportsbook at long shots is now open and is the only sports book in frederick offering cash betting on football basketball world soccer and more Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BedfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. So what followed was an explosion of subculture, but many felt that it was only a fad created by the media. In September of 1991, Nirvana released their second record, and we're going to talk about everything Nirvana next week. But their record, never mind. It was it was hoped to be a minor success, but it's 
first single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, marked the instigation of the grunge music phenomenon. Smells Like Teen Spirit became an anti-anthem for all those that felt disconnected with their lives. The lyrics of the song are observational of the society that stuck in boredom. Kurt Cobain, the spokesman of the generation, being one of the disconnected that he said, everyone has focused on that song so much. The reason why it gets a big reaction is that people have seen it on MTV. It's been pounded into their brains. High rotation of Smells Like Teen Spirit made Nevermind a global success. It replaced Michael Jackson's album Dangerous at the number one on the Billboard 200. This was a symbolic event of great significance since it marked the beginning of a new era in history. It actually launched grunge into the mainstream and gave way to other bands. It also announced the start of a new regime. The old long-haired bands were not representing a revolt anymore and their symbols like bandanas and whiskeys and motorcycles were now considered cliche and they were only an illusion and not real non-conformity. In addition, within the weeks of the release of Nevermind, major labels started searching for the next Nirvana in alternative venues in Seattle. And this implied that Nirvana was not understood as a musical anomaly, but that Seattle had become a city with a unique and lucrative sound. Yes. Which is, it's so weird because Seattle was so detached from the rest of the scenes, and now they are the the ground zero. They're the focus of this new genre in which people are latching onto by saying that they are disenfranchised and angsty, and they want to be left alone, and now they've become the antithesis of what they are. Right. It's just weird that they would become the thing that they didn't want to be like they were they were separated from everything else and now they're the thing that's holding this musical genre together there are several reasons why the mainstream success of grunge actually started to decline one of them is the appearance of new genres which were completely different like Britpop, which had a more positive point of view on life and because of that it actually started replacing grunge but do you know what you can't replace? What's that? Free stuff. And you know what? We're terrible at segues. We are wonderful at segues. This is... <laughs> I am the queen of segues. I don't know about that, but all right. <laughs> do you like free stuff? Always. Okay. Do you like free stuff that can spice up your love life? Always. Well, I have something for you. Oh, yeah? Is it... Could it possibly be our Adam and Eve code? It's an Adam and Eve code. You are right. Yeah. And with this code, you can select almost any item for 50% off. And then Adam and Eve will load on a ton of free stuff. TJ, do you know our special code? Is it RR Heaven? It is RR Heaven. And you just put that in at checkout and you will get 10 free tantalizing gifts do you want ten six that's awesome you get 10 so Woo. you get a sexy item for him a special gift for you and a third item that you'll both enjoy and then oh, you yeah. get then you get six free spicy movies all right <laughs> do you like spicy movies i mean i do but <laughs> i never really get through them all <laughs> I never get all the way through them. I get too, I get too excited. <laughs> well, you've got six of them. So if you order with our code RRHeaven, 
you can have six movies that you don't get all the way through. Perfect. Well, and, because, you know, sometimes I like different stuff than what Chip likes. I mean, that's what's great about getting six of them. Yeah. And to top everything off, you get free shipping. I suppose I'll share with him. <laughs> so enter the code RRHEAVEN. That's like rock and roll heaven at adamandeve.com and have a good night. Come on, you you know you're looking for stuff to do anyways. Might as well get some free stuff to help you to help entertain yourself. Seriously, you get 10 items, 50% off, and free shipping, and we're all stuck inside, so you might as well have a good time. And you can do that with adamandeve.com. Enter promo code RRHeaven at checkout. Oh yeah. There'll be a whole new there'll be a whole new generation post quarantine. That's Corona babies. That's been the joke is that there's going to be so many kids born in November. <laughs> December, November. Yeah. Okay. So jumping back in. Because we're so good at the segues. We're super good at the segues. I swear Adam and Eve will get better. <laughs> we were just talking about Britpop, which was coming out of Britain in 1993. And that was bands like Blur, which are characterized as anti-grunge. Um, and he stated in an interview that if punk was about getting rid of hippies, he was about getting rid of grunge. Wow. That's rough. Saucy. And you do have to remember, like, 1993, 94, we're getting into, like, the darker stuff, like Tool and Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn. What's that? When you said Tool, I said good band. So Nine Inch Nails is a great band. Yeah. Marilyn Manson, who I, I love. That's my darker side. I didn't get into Marilyn as much, but, uh, you know, but I did like his stuff. His cover of Sweet Dreams Are Made of These is oh, so good. So good. Uh, and then, and then, <laughs> then you had Hanson and the Spice Girls and Savage Garden oh, and Aqua that were all going to be moving in. Right, that was a guilty pleasure of mine was Aqua, but. Yeah, yeah but that, that's what started me. moving in with over like the next four years from 93, because I remember in 97, like you know, Savage Garden was topping the charts. Yes. And, oh God, I love Savage Garden so much. I don't know why, but I did too. Oh, and it didn't matter how, like, Two Beds and a Coffee Machine is a crap song, but I listened to it like a thousand times. (laughs) I'll be your dream, I'll be your wish, I'll be your fantasy. Why are you doing that like Britney Spears? I don't know, because I was, because I've, (laughs) you know, been coughing and I feel like it. (laughs) um okay so another thing that caused the decline of its popularity is that bands either stopped existing or performing specifically of course Kurt Cobain's suicide in 1994 is perceived by many as the end of the grunge era he was named in the media as the spokesperson of the generation at the age of 27 he joined the infamous 27 club of musicians who died at the peak of their success like Jim Morrison Jimi Hendrix Janis Joplin etc and we are going to talk about the 27 Club because oh yeah, we actually talked about this last week. Um, is that there's Will Will explained it really well. It was that you know people take things and they kind of attach a, a, a significance to it, but the 27 Club in itself is not an anomaly. People die. It's just arbi- yeah, it's completely arbitrary. Totally arbitrary, but people assign an importance to it. So, but we'll get into that when we do our episode on the 27 Club. Um, 
Pearl Jam actually stopped performing in the USA for three years since they were boycotting the company Ticketmaster because of their opinion. They were overcharging for concert tickets. And I stand behind Pearl Jam. I concur. It's completely yeah. garbage that we would, like, I remember when I was a freshman in college and we were going to all these rock shows and it's like the bands are charging $25 for a, a full night concert. And it's like all of a sudden there's another $25 fee because it's Ticketmaster. And it's like, what kind of crap is this? It cost me just as much to buy the concert ticket that as you charge me in fees, you jerks. And when you're a poor college student, you don't have that money. Yeah. And it's for me, it's it's the same thing that's happening out. uh, I think that's happening on Broadway right now. It's not. Well, it just becomes really hard to go to any sort of a show or event. You know, I mean, right now. Well, look at Hamilton tickets. They were selling for like $2,700. And that's insane, by the way. Yeah, it is. I can't afford that. And I feel like that should be a something that is accessible to people some way. When Rent came out, it was a statement against the establishment. And Jonathan Larson took it a step further by offering a lottery system, which I think Hamilton does as well. And yeah. I know Dear Evan Hansen was doing it, was that you would get tickets to see it for $20. But, you know, not <laughs> with the show as popular as Hamilton, I entered the lottery every single day that it was doing its Pantages run. And I never won. So it just, it like, it, the music and the shows become inaccessible to the people that really want to see it. And it becomes a thing that's only for the rich. And that's not fair. Yeah, that's crap. So I don't understand why they don't do something like, and, and Rent did do this. They filmed their last show and they put that out on DVD. So I could take it, I could see the show and... I could take it home and I could watch it whenever I wanted to. It wasn't exactly like being in the live theater, but at least I got to see the show. And right. I feel like all Broadway shows should do that. They should film the last one and then sell it. Plus you'll make extra money. I'll pay $30 for a DVD if I can continue to watch it. I'll still support the show, but I don't have an extra three grand laying around to go see something that lasts two and a half hours. No. So enough of that. <laughs> so Pearl Jam quit performing in the U.S., and Allison Change stopped performing in 1996 since their singer Lance Staley suffered from a drug addiction and in 2002 died of an overdose. And of course, we'll be doing an episode on him as well. Yes. Um, so what about grunge today? It, it essentially goes back to the notion of a subculture. So what are the reasons why grunge is not as viable today as it was in the 90s? And the main reason is the natural motion of subcultures. You really don't have traditional hippies today. Young people who identify with any of the subcultures inevitably grow up and leave that certain group, which means that the notion of the subculture at the same time signifies a certain value systems and norms, beliefs, and styles, and way of life about a specific subject, which the group lives according to their value system. When a group stops living that value system, the subculture would continue to exist if it only serves the purpose and interest of the generation, which is next to come. So... Grunge doesn't fit the interest of this younger generation. Um, They maybe don't find the answers to their problems in that particular music, and they're waiting for a different spokesman who will reflect and understand their problems. We now live in this society of rapid technological developments, and so it's strange because grunge music, the ideology was loneliness, bitterness, you know, malaise. It was 
And I think that we're beginning to feel that again. So I'm curious if we'll have someone who is a representative of that grunge community come in and create a new grunge. Mm, maybe. I mean, the, the kids are now are even more alienated than they were at, in the 90s. Yeah. Because in the 90s, you had to go to coffee houses. <laughs> well, they're all seeking a voice in this social media sphere versus you know so it's a little bit it's a little bit different because they're all they're all still trying to find a voice and trying to be heard and seen but they're trying to do it on a bigger scale within this social media sphere of everyone in the world has to see me and and hear me and follow me and otherwise my life isn't valid my opinions aren't valid and that I mean it's a really sad place when you look at that um but then there's also this whole other there's these whole other things happening with that with this younger generation too of the things that they care about and the things that they express and that you know our generation we're just like huh what are you doing i don't get it well also like take take for example like in the 90s we you could talk to your friend on the phone but in reality when grunge was happening we didn't have the internet so if right. you wanted to connect with someone, yeah, we did. It was early days. It was like AOL days. No, 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 not in '92 to '94. Like a week, it was like '95, '96 when the internet came along. Oh, okay. So you could talk to your friend on the phone, but of course, like you would go out and meet people. You would actually go out in the public. God forbid. Yeah. Now all the social interaction is happening on people's couches, on their computers. Like it, they don't have that personal connection now. We're. I feel like you know the idea of we are more connected now than we've ever been, but we're super disconnected. Right. Like, would you rather call me or text me? Call I would rather for me. I'm weird. I prefer, unless it's a quick thing or it's something that we're trying to sort out while we're both at work schedules or doing other things. I prefer to be able to sit down and have a telephone conversation with somebody, but that's just me. I know I'm kind of weird in that respect. And I have people in my life that won't even answer the phone. But the, the thing about like looping this back into grunge is that before you actually had to make the effort to communicate with people and like kids don't even have to leave the house now to communicate with people. They've got Facebook, True. they've got Twitter, they've got Instagram, they've got TikTok. What they need is somebody that will inspire them to take action, to make change, to participate in the society that they're a part of and not just sit there while life goes by. Hiding behind their computers. Yeah, and grunge offers that answer to the young people of the 90s, but now it's something, it's like something new that society has become the status quo of this social disconnection from people. Pretty soon everybody's going to be like the people in Wally. But that, that, like, people don't have that, that singular voice kind of guiding them anymore. You know, I feel like a lot of it. And maybe this sounds harsh, but I feel like a lot of the lyrics were a little bit self-indulgent, but I think it worked because there was a lot of people out there that felt the same way, that it became a social commentary. Yeah, and a lot of people kind of glommed onto it because they're like, this is how I feel. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I love grunge music. I love, and let's be honest, most music or artistry in some way, shape, or form is mildly self-indulgent because it is how we cope and how we get our how we express ourselves. Speaking of taste, let's talk about grunge in fashion. Okay. Because I know you were talking a lot about this before. 
I wore it. You wore it. It was amazing. I still wear it. You kind of do. Yeah. Constantly. <laughs> Clothes commonly worn by grunge musicians in Washington were mundane, everyday style. Uh, in which they could wear the same clothes on the stage that they wore at home. And this Pacific Northwestern sliper style or slouch look was contrasted sharply with the wild mohawks and leather and chains worn by punks. This everyday clothing approach was used by grunge musicians basically because authenticity was a key principle in the Seattle scene. And so they were going for that, like, not sellout kind of thing. Right. It was the greatest. My sister and I, my dad would get so angry but my sister especially and me occasionally would go and sneak into my dad's closet and like borrow his flannels for the day and then like sneak them back in before he got home yeah as if he didn't know I used to steal my brother's stuff all the time well he had a lot of flannels because that's what he preferred to wear to work so and then it was perfect because then on top of being flannels they were oversized because they were our dads yeah so, like, the grunge look consisted of secondhand clothing or thrift store items, and they were t- typically, like, outdoor clothing, most notably those flannel shirts of that region, and it was generally an unkept appearance and long hair. And for grunge singers, long hair was used as a mask to conceal the face. Like, I didn't know what Kurt Cobain looked like for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so they can express their innermost thoughts as opposed to like using their face to express what they were trying to get a hold of you with. It was, it was more of a listen to my songs. Don't focus on me. I'm just the catalyst. Like I'm just the mouthpiece of this. Well, and their heads were usually down. Yeah. Slouching, playing their guitar. Like, don't look at me. Yeah. Male grunge grunge musicians, they were unkempt, unshaven with tousled hair that was often unwashed, greasy, and matted into a sheepdog mop. Yes, that is yep. it. The lumberjack, <laughs> the lumberjack attire was a common sight in the thrift stores in Seattle for the low prices that musicians could afford. Grunge style consisted of ripped jeans, thermal underwear, mom jeans, Doc Martin boots or combat boots, often unlaced, band t-shirts, over-knit styled sweaters, long and droopy skirts, ripped tights, Birkenstocks and hiking boots and eco-friendly clothing made from recycled textiles or fair trade organic cotton. As well, since the women in the grunge scene wore the same, uh, they, they actually had shorter hair and they, the women in that music scene were not defined by their sex appeal. Well, look at when we were talking about Dolores O'Riordan. She was considered grunge at that time. Like she wasn't yeah. from Seattle, but she had that look and that sound. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into the female fashion in just a second because there. Oh, sorry, I thought you said females. No, no, no. We're there's another paragraph, and then I actually get into one particular person who kind of moved the era into something else, fashion-wise. Okay. So grunge actually became an anti-consumerist movement. The less you spend on clothes, the more coolness you had, and. I fully agree. It's like I had the ripped jeans, I had the long underwear, I had the flannels, and I had the combat boots. And that's like, that was what I wore to school in 1992 and 1993. That was like my school uniform. (laughs) And you knew what day it was because of the different colored shirts that I had tied around my waist. Yep. (laughs) But I still wear that all the time. It's still a good It's a great style. Sorry. 
it's a great style of dress. Like it still works today. That's the thing is like, it's still accessible today. Um, the style did not evolve out of a conscious attempt to create an appealing fashion. Kurt Cobain was just too lazy to use shampoo. <laughs> Yeah. The clothing was cheap, it was durable, and it's kind of timeless, which we were just talking about. Like, you can still wear it today, and it doesn't look like it's out of time. Whereas, like, if you tried to dress like David Lee Roth from 1987, you're going to get some weird looks on the streets. Uh, it also runs against the grain of the whole flashy aesthetic that existed in the 80s. The flannel and the cracked leatherette coats in the grunge scenes were part of the Pacific Northwest thrift shop aesthetic. Grunge fashion was very anti-fashion response to the nonconformist movement against the manufactured image, often pushed by musicians to dress in an authentic way and to not glamorize themselves. At that same time, Sub Pop utilized the grunge look in their marketing of the bands. In an interview with VH1, photographer Chris Peterson commented that the members of the grunge right. band had were given blue-collar identities that weren't entirely earned. Bruce Pavitt really got them to dress up in flannel and a real chainsaw and played this image of a mountain man, and it worked. So even people that weren't authentic were trying to... Sell authentic. Make, yeah, sell authentic and take that image like, oh, look, we're dressed down too. Days Magazine called Courtney Love one of the 10 women who defined the 90s from a style perspective. The image of Courtney Love's two short baby doll dresses, tattered fur coats, and shocks of platinum hair were dubbed Kinder Whore. <laughs> the Kinder Whore look. Topped with a tiara, of course, is seared the memory of anyone who lived through that decade. The Kinder Whore look, and I'm so sorry I'm having to use that term over and over again, consisted of torn rip tights or a low-cut baby doll dress or Peter Pan collar dress. Slips were a big thing. Heavy makeup with dark eyeliner, uh, barrettes, leather boots, or Mary Jane style shoes. And while Courtney Love was the first one to popularize it, it's claimed that she actually took that style from a future episode of Rock and Roll Heaven, the Divinals front woman, Christina Amphlett, who became popular in 1994. Do you know who the Divinals are? I'm sure you know their song. Yes. Okay. Uh, I touch myself? Yes. I touch myself. Yep. Vogue stated in 2014 that Cobain pulled liberally from both ends of a woman's and a man's wardrobe. It was completely countered to the shellacked, flashy aesthetic of the 1980s in every way. In Deceval Jeans and Glorifrox, he softened the tough exterior of the archetypal rebel from the inside out and to set the ball in motion for a radical millennial idea of androgyny. Cobain's way of dressing was the antithesis of the macho American man because he was way cooler to look slouchy and loose, no matter if you were a boy or a girl. And I think there's a picture of all the members of Nirvana in dresses, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right? I think there is somewhere. Yeah, but it was like, it didn't matter because it felt like it was genuine. <laughs> right. Uh, music and culture writer Juliana Escobedo Shepard wrote that with Cobain's style of dress, not only did he make it okay to be a freak, he made it desirable. Oh, yeah. Freaks unite. Yep. Surprisingly, this style became a fashion statement in 1992 when grunge music was at the peak of its success. In November, three young designers, Mark Jacob, Anasui, and Christian Roth, presented grunge style to 7th Avenue. Opinions on this style were divided. 
English actress Sophie Dahl said that the word grunge was antisocial and the premise anecdotal to what had gone before. Grunge fashion was perfect for the awkward stages of adolescence. In contrast, Susie mentions a fashion critic described it as ghastly. How absurd it was to introduce grunge into the fashion world is best said by a reader who sent in the letter. If the whole idea is to dress down, why picture models in $400 dresses? No one who honestly relates to the music labeled grunge is going to pay $1,400 for a cashmere sweater, especially when they can be perfectly comfortable in a flannel shirt for 50 cents at the local thrift store. Although Jacob's collection was not even produced, it did affect the fashion world. A reporter for Knight Ritter, writer, R-I-D-D-E-R, Ritter, Knight Ritter newspaper wrote in 1992, all fashion is loosened up in an apparent rejection of the hard edges and styles and attitudes of the 80s. Grunge is a realization of that backlash at its most extreme and ugliest. Images, advertisements, and editorials begin to show what is real. Although it's a positive thing, I agree with uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier's opinion that grunge is nothing more than the way we dress when we have no money. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of the whole point. Yeah. Going back to its sound, it was Nirvana. I know I'm I'm probably going to point this out, but one of Nirvana's albums costs like $606 to record and produce. Why would you pay $1,000 for a cashmere sweater when the thing that you're trying to emulate costs less than $1,000 to produce? Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of the end of our look at grunge. There are some great films out there that kind of use the grunge scene, which is like, singles um oh my gosh uh reality bites anything that's kind of like the Gen Xer movies if you kind of want to get an idea of grunge but we're definitely going to be diving more into specifically Nirvana next week in our Kurt Cobain episode but I think grunge was a very special and interesting time in music because it was our generation's ability to push back against consumerism and things like that, which I think people are attempting to do now on a much smaller scale, but it's really interesting to see what grunge did with that medium. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on grunge, my friend? I mean, I said it earlier, I love grunge. Uh, I love the music. I love the fashion. I love, I just love it. I, I wish that it never ended. It, you know, and that's the, the... I wish that that was my heyday, I think. <laughs> I wish that time machines existed because there's a few moments and eras in time that I wish to have been able to be a part of, like, in that right time of my life, of, like, my mid-20s, you know, and See, gone yeah. around and experienced all of it, of, like, the Woodstock days and the grunge era of the 90s oh my god I probably would have just spent at least that two that whole two years living in Seattle if I had a time machine but how how old were you in 1992 eight yeah I mean I was I was between 11 and 13 my sister was 12 so like I don't know though I mean I feel like it still was a big part of our lives because it you know, we kind of grew up with it a little bit, you know? Right. Because if you figure the start of grunge was in 92, I think it kind of helped. It it grew with us and, and kind of shaped a little bit, you know? 
Yeah, but... I think I get a lot of my political ideology from growing up in that time, which is kind of like anti-consumerism. I, I try not to, I, I try to be a free thinker when it comes to things like politics. And, you know, I try to be myself and be honest with myself. And I try to spend, I will still scoff if I have to pay more than $30 for a pair of pants. So I think I got a lot of my ideology on fashion from that grunge idea. And I definitely did do the baby doll dresses with the Mary Jane shoes and the barrettes and things like that. My mom would laugh at me. She's like, you're dressing like a baby. But Courtney Love is like 25 and she's doing it. So it must be okay. (laughs) So um, are you excited about next week's episode? Yeah, of course. I am, I'm thrilled to be doing it and I'm super excited. I'm kind of jealous that you took this entire month though. Well, I knew you were going to be busy. So, (laughs) well, yeah, I would have been, (laughs) but you will be an integral part of, uh, May and funny enough in May for our short set, my brother actually wrote the short set for us. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the fact that I get to do Kurt Cobain. The week after that, we're going to be talking about the all the media about Kurt Cobain. So all of the biopics, the uh, films loosely based on him, the conspiracy theories around his murder, the documentaries. And so it's going to be uh, kind of all over the place, but tied together with the idea of Kurt Cobain and his passing. So that's going to be a, a more heady episode. So I'm glad we did this one because this was fun. Yeah. So I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm not even going to read our Patreon because I want our listeners to take care of themselves first. So you can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can find us at Facebook on Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And then you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. If I said those too fast, they will be in the show notes. You guys, Please, I know we're getting into week two and week three of our social distancing and our kind of lockdowns and things like that. Please take care of yourselves. Please make sure that you're not going outside and possibly putting other people in danger. We love you all. We don't want to lose a single one of you. We want all of you to take care of yourselves. So please just stay inside. Plus, also, if you guys are all caught up on our episodes and looking for other content um, and you know, other ways to entertain yourself. Remember too, that we have joined on with the Pantheon Podcast Network and there's a ton of great episodes and different podcasts over there as well. If you go to rockandrollarchaeology.com and again, that link will also be in the show notes. Um, Go find yourself a new one. Like the muses is awesome. It's bad. That one's all about like the mistresses, the wives, the the uh, managers, friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, groupies behind Legends and Rock. So that one's a really cool one, actually. I really enjoy that one. Yeah, uh, Pantheon has, I think, 33 different shows under their umbrella. We're just one of them. And they've got a ton of amazing shows that you guys can go check out. We, I wholeheartedly agree. Go check those out. Yeah, and like the newest members of our podcast family, um, they have a podcast called dad bod rap pod um we love the name and we just want to give them a little bit of a plug uh for being a new new to the new to it all and then there's supposed to be a really funny one of who cares about the rock hall yep (laughs) with 
that's really, really funny if you guys are into that as well. So the, the co-hosts are great and yeah, but check those shows out cause they're awesome. And please like, while we're in this quarantine, reach out to us guys. Cause we are definitely missing social interactions. So you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can email us. We, we love getting your messages and so please reach out to us that way because we are lonely plus you know i think at some point next week well this week later this week when you hear this i i might sit and host a virtual happy hour on uh on our facebook yeah if i decide to do that i will post something about it and uh she'll post that on She'll post that on Facebook, Twitter, and our Instagram page so that you guys know about that so you can have a happy hour drink with TJ. Yeah, come drink, listen to some music, ask me questions, you know. And maybe I can even uh, maybe talk her into doing a Facebook concert, a little mini concert for you guys. You're assuming I can... I I did pull out my guitar yesterday to play a little bit, and um, it's not horrible, but... I mean, for me, it wasn't horrible, but it's pretty dang rusty. So uh, I'll have to work on that one. We'll see yeah. how long this. We'll see how long this lasts, and if I have enough time to actually get good. Yeah, and also, uh, I am in the process of posting on our Facebook page. I'm selling off some of our books. Uh, they're going to be anywhere between like five and ten dollars because my house has become overrun with um, music books and I'm running out of space in the house. And I think if I get another book, Will may divorce me. And so <laughs> if you're interested in any of our research books, uh, I'll be linking that on our Facebook page as well. You know, and they'll, they'll be reasonably priced. They're not, I'm not gouging anybody because they were held by the host of Rock and Roll Heaven. Um, I know that has a lot of cachet. Oh yeah, I'm super popular. uh anyway guys thank you so much for checking this episode out i hope you like it uh i know it's probably a lot less edited than normal but um you know we'll be back next week with our more rigid and formatted episode on kurt cobain and if you're bored in the meantime go check out some of the other pantheon podcasts or you know the adam and eve code rr heaven yep the uh goodies yeah because uh, with that code, you will get 10 free gifts. And who doesn't like free stuff? So use our code. That's 50% our- off of what you were there to look for anyways. Yeah. So use our code RRHeaven at checkout at adamandeve.com. They're awesome. We really appreciate them sponsoring this episode. And that's it. So TK. Yeah. I wish I could hug you. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. Like in our relationship or just... <laughs> in our relationship. I don't know if we're there yet, dude. I, don't, I won't even sit in the same room with you right now, you know. <laughs> so you're saying it's not me, it's the virus. Sure. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Right now, you can get free carpet installation from the Home Depot. So while we're putting in your new carpet, you'll have more time to take care of the lawn. Get started on dinner. Or just lay down and relax on your new carpet after it's installed. Ah. Get your free carpet installation started with the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Minimum purchase of $4.99. Exclusions apply. U.S. only. See store for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 